High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Do you want to continue to live out the patterns of your childhood or do you want to make different choices? Are you programmed or are you self-determining? And let's look at what that looks like. So I think that people aren't taught how to be accepting of their own mistakes and self-forgive. And then because they can't do that, they can't forgive others for what they perceive are other people's mistakes, and they think that they should be harshly criticized, punished, those kinds of things. That's our guest, Loretta Ross, professor at Smith College in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender, a founder of Reproductive Justice Theory, and an expert on feminism, racism, and human rights. Loretta has co-written three books on reproductive justice and is the author of the forthcoming book, Calling In the Calling Out Culture. Loretta has been a leader in the human rights movement for decades. She worked with Reverend C.T. Vivian, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s right hands, to rehabilitate former members of hate groups. As a rape and incest survivor herself, she taught Black feminism to incarcerated rapists. She has learned throughout her improbable career to lift the hood on people's lived experiences and the identity that they project to the world and determine, through courageous conversation, where their humanity lies and where their values overlap. She believes with a certain fierceness that we have far more in common with each other across the entire political spectrum than not. In recent years, she has become a vocal opponent of cancel culture. Ironically, people have attempted to cancel her for this because, as she explains, she's interested in being part of a movement and not a cult. She believes the political purity and the policing of other allies is the opposite of helpful, and that in the process of building coalitions for sweeping social change and evolution, we alienate and lose people who would otherwise want the very same things as us. Today, she gives us a crash course in the practice of calling in, something which she herself teaches on her website. It's an alternative to calling out or publicly shaming those whose behavior or beliefs we deem unacceptable. In a culture devoid of empathy and grace, 
Loretta implores us to offer people a chance to change, to give them the opportunity to be as good on the outside as they think they are on the inside. For Loretta, recognizing that how we do the work is just as important as the work we do, gives us the incredible opportunity to bring more people in, building the power base of the social justice movement. When we choose to use calling in practices, she says, we choose them because of who we are, not because of who the other person is. And when we affirm the humanity of others, we affirm our own humanity in turn. Okay, let's get to our conversation. We're all human, right? And we're all here doing our best in these meat jackets. And yet we, particularly in this culture, are holding ourselves or holding each other probably would be more appropriate to like some righteous standards of behavior. And so it is an honor to sit with you. I admire sort of every facet of your long and storied career in activism. And I think that your message, which I've heard you equate to sort of potentially it's the equivalent of a non of nonviolence in the 60s is so powerful and so needed. So thank you for all of your your work. I just want to start there. You are a lighthouse for all of us. So maybe we can start and with your a little bit of your worldview about I've heard you describe it as sort of the percentages or sort of how we're all aligned along a spectrum politically and the way that you see this adherence to either extreme as sort of as so problematic and whether you think that we inherently like we try to balance each other out as some sort of massive human organism. And so that's why we're seeing polarity. But would you mind just sort of giving us an overview of how you think about activism in the context of moving people? So if you're the only black person in a room full of white people and you're asked to speak on behalf of all black people, that's identity determinism. If you're a white person in an interracial group and you think you shouldn't say something because you're white, that's identity determinism. Mm -hmm. So willing that you're either compelled to say something or foreclosed from saying something is all part of that spectrum of identity determinism that we really need to question because people should be judging the content of what they want to contribute, not the identity of the person contributing it. The same way you can sit in some corporate boardrooms, when a woman says something, they just overlook it. And when a man says the very same thing, then it's given weight and substance. That's identity determinism. <clears throat> so how do we counteract that? Well, first, by understanding that our identities are a fundamental shaper of who we are. So there's no problem having an identity. You should be proud of your identity and work on improving it every day. But at the same time, just like lived experiences, it's not the totality of what you need to know in a given situation. It's not just what you've been through that matters, but what other people have been through, what the evidence says, what facts on the ground say, that all have to be integrated so that you can actually have a cogent analysis of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so we counter it by 
trusting in our lived experiences, but not expecting that our lived experiences to provide the entire truth of what is going on. Right. So I don't want to discount the lived experiences, but at the same time, too many times we think, well, I've been through this. And so I have the correct way of seeing how the world works kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, but other people have been through what they've been through and they're just as complicated as you are. So you think possibly that they have something to add to this shared pool of knowledge that we all need? I've heard you describe the, the social justice movement or as a circular firing squad or this idea, too, that some, t- some people would like sort of an ad- a cult-like adherence to everyone having the same perspective and same list of priorities and same point of view on every issue and that you're interested in building movements. And when we we establish a standard and then expect everyone to abide and police that standard, really, in the wider world, that we lose the opportunity to talk to everyone who might have a substantial Venn diagram of values, but might not feel the same about every single issue. But I think you you talk about it as we, you know, losing the opportunity to even be in their ear or talk to them or engage with them as a, a human when we dismiss everyone who isn't in lockstep. I call it my circles of influence. I am, of course, a radical progressive so that I inhabit and prefer to inhabit what I call my 90% bubble. And 90% isn't based on our percentage in the population, but it's based on the high level of unity that I have with people who share a worldview with me. And parts of that worldview are opposition to injustice and racism and sexism and challenging neoliberal capitalism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia. You know, we've got all our nice little buzzwords for it. That's what makes us 90 percenters because we have this common language that we use that is intelligible to us, but can be off-putting to a whole lot of other people when you use words like heteropatriarchy and things like that. Our problem as 90 percenters is that we spend entirely too much time trying to turn each other into 100 percenters under the mistaken belief that if my political views don't perfectly align with yours, one of us must be wrong. It's not enough that we agree on 90% of our worldview. I want 100%. And that's where those cult-like tactics come in. Because we believe that you've got to use this word to describe this situation. You've got to include this person if you want to be this. And that kind of policing of words, policing of behaviors, policing of identities takes place. And so we spend a lot of time punching sideways, trying to convince people to turn themselves into 100 percenters. But I've often said that when many different people think many different thoughts and they move in the same direction, that's a movement. But when many different people think one thought and they move in the same direction, that's a cult. Mm -hmm. And we're building a human rights movement, not a human rights cult. Now, outside of the 90 percenters are what I call my 75 percenters. These are the people who largely share my worldview, 
and they work on the things that I care about, like the Girl Scouts working on girls and women's empowerment. But at the same time, they're not going to use this highfalutin feminist language to describe what they're talking about, like heteropatriarchy, for example. And as a matter of fact, they're turned <laughs> off by those kinds of words because it feels like to them that we're talking down to them when we start weaponizing our knowledge and language against them. But of course, as a feminist, the Girl Scouts are my allies and I'm their ally. And outside of the 75 percenters or the 50 percenters, people like my parents. My father was an immigrant from Jamaica who joined the military when he was underage, as a matter of fact, stayed in the military for 26 years, hyper-patriotic, worked two and three jobs to keep our family of 10 afloat. Always had disparaging things to say about people who didn't work two or three jobs like he did. <laughs> you know, they just weren't working hard enough or whatever. Uh, not understanding quite that you weren't supposed to have to work two or three jobs, keep your family afloat. But dad left home at seven o'clock in the morning and I never came home until we were in bed. So we really had no real relationship with dad because he was always working. Mom was a housekeeper, which was, I mean, a homemaker. Uh, she had actually been a domestic worker, but she was a homemaker with eight kids and Southern Evangelical Christian. And so she believed in faith. She believed in family. She believed in community service. But she also believed that birth control for her daughters mean holding a Bible between our knees so that it wouldn't fall out. risk <laughs> 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 exposing us to the dangers of sex. And so talking to 50 percenters like my parents is very important because they can move either to the right or the left. That's why they're 50 percenters because they're just as likely to be influenced by my father's buddies in the National Rifle Association and adopt their worldview or my mother influenced by the faith healers and the Christian proselytizers in her life as she was by the values that I espouse. So one time my mother was trying to explain what kind of work I do. She just couldn't explain it. She said, well, I have one son who's an architect and I have a Another son who's a pharmacist, and Loretta, well, Loretta just doesn't go to jail often. Because <laughs> she had this perception in her head that if you do human rights work, like you know Martin Luther King, you must either go to jail or get shot. I mean, that's all she could imagine what my life was like. And so after she hung up her call trying to describe me, I told her, I said, Mom, do you remember when you started the Girl Scout troop for us because we weren't allowed into the white Girl Scout troops. And she said, yes. And I said, you remember how we had to cook food and feed homeless people as part of our merit badges, getting our merit badges? And she said, yeah. I said, well, mom, you fed the hungry. And as a human rights activist, I ask why they're hungry in the first place. Hmm. I'm living out your values in a different way. So with 50 percenters, you go underneath their words and you speak to their values. And you can show them that 
the things you care about, I also care about, and I'm expressing or working on them in a different way. And so I believe that we can build a very effective movement by not writing off people in that 75 or that 50 percentile, meaning degrees of shared overview and values with us. If we go underneath their words, we put our egos to the side and really listen to them, take their perspectives and suffering very seriously, as seriously as we take our own, and bring them into the circle. Now, outside of the 50 percenters are 25 percenters. These are the people with whom we have so little overlap and worldviews that we're going to have a lot of difficulty talking to them. It's kind of like trying to convince people who think the election was stolen from Trump versus people who say it wasn't and that Biden won. There's not enough common worldview there around <laughs> elections to actually have that kind of influence that you wish you could have. Uh, outside of the 25 percenters are the zero percenters. And these are the people who are the antithesis of what I believe in because they believe in openly supporting white supremacy. They believe in overthrowing our democracy simply because they can't monopolize power and control in it. They are proud to be cruel to each other, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so you're gonna have no purchase in trying to influence them. And so in my analysis, this what you need to do is build your power base with the 90 percenters, the 75 percenters, and the 50 percenters. And particularly focusing on the 50 percenters because every 50 percenter you neglect can be a recruit for the other side, for the dark force. <laughs> <laughs> and so we should use our power base to overwhelm the 25 and the zeros so that our worldview is the one that power is attached to. But unfortunately, it's their worldview that has moved from the margins to the center. So the policies and the proposals that used to only be in the mouths of the Ku Klux Klan are now Republican public policy. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep. Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample-policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. I so appreciate your work because I'm from Montana, which is a purple state, and it's a really interesting sort of mix of people with many, a, a pretty wide overlap of Venn diagrams, but certain issues, the NRA is obviously very strong there. And when I go home, I go to this 
this ranch to ride horses. And typically on a ride, it'll be half and half, half progressives like me and half people who bought have bought guns in the last two years out of concern for their personal safety, quote unquote. And it's really interesting to be on these four-hour trail rides because invariably politics comes up and you really get to know people, people that you might skirt even from association. I think we should talk about that because that's certainly part of this cancel culture is like, am I associated with anyone who's going to denigrate this perfect image of myself in the eyes of other people? But to spend time with people and really talk to them, it is that. It's like your opportunity to not to change people's minds because I I don't I I don't know that words or facts or statements really do that but to at least present a conversation where you know and typically where people get really really worked up is around something like trans rights and it's not about trans rights they don't seem to have any issue with a person expressing whatever their gender is it's the policing around the language that gets them really worked up into a tizzy, for example. So it's like at at heart, these people are typically pretty socially liberal, like live and let live. And yet they get all enwrapped in this idea of the left and progressives as a kind of a police force, ironically, right? Because that's also one of the things that we're trying to unwind. But anyway, I think I've I've listened to you for a while now and it's given me a lot of durability and I'd say an extra shot of grace and just being able to sit and listen and not react and hear them out and understand where they feel threatened. So thank you for that. But I, I think we need to be, I don't know how many conversations like that are happening at this point in time. It feels so volatile to engage in a in a way that's very, very disheartening. And, and I think part of it, which I think I would love to explore with you, is the way that we perceive ourselves and then the way that we perceive having any of these conversations is somehow sleeping with the enemy or, I mean, you know, you've worked with the Klan, right? You've, as a rape I victim- I the Klan, but I've got to do but, the program. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you worked with former Klaners to reintroduce them, rehabilitate them and reintroduce them to society. As a rape victim, you've taught black feminism to incarcerated rapists. Like you have gone to places to zero percenters, really, 25 percenters out of a place somehow of like not out of a wound, which is also remarkable because I think so many of us react out of wounds and go into these conversations completely unhealed and then just project our pain on other people. So it's, it's quite a model. So how do we do that? And is being healed essential in order to engage in, in this work? Well, healing is a process, not an event. So it's not like you'll ever get over the trauma that has happened to you and you know, live a life as if it never happened. Of course, it did happen. What I found through many years is that you just get better at managing your trauma, but you never can mm. quite erase it. So it's a matter of whether or not you're going to self-determine and let your trauma define who you are. Or do you have control of your soul? Do you have control of how you want to walk through the world? But when it comes to talking to 25 and zero percenters, 
generally I use what I call my Uncle Frank strategy because I have them in my family. We all do. It's not just a stranger on the street that you're horseback riding with. It's the Uncle Frank that blows up the Thanksgiving dinner table by saying something racist because the niece is saying, we shouldn't be celebrating Thanksgiving. It's thing, you know, Columbus Day and all this, you know, all this other stuff. And my Uncle Frank's strategy is to first remind the person who says these hateful, racist things or whatever out of their mouths of who they are. And so with my Uncle Frank, I used the tactic of saying, Uncle Frank, I know you would run into a burning building to save somebody if you could. And I know you wouldn't care about what race they were, whether they were gay, whether they were an immigrant, because I know that's who you are, Uncle Frank. You're a good man. So Uncle Frank, help me understand how I can reconcile the good man that I know you are with the words that just came out of your mouth. Which uncle do I actually have? The good Uncle Frank or the Uncle Frank that says those bad things about other people? You're not calling them in or you're not calling them out. You're calling on Uncle Frank to determine how he wants to walk through the world in his niece's eyes. So you're lessening the feeling that he's going to feel attacked or put on the defensive because you're asking him to self-interrogate, self-assess. Is this how I want to be seen by people? Or do I want to be seen in a way that's aligned with my good opinion of myself that I have on the inside. Those are the tactics that are teachable, that are learnable through calling in practices that we can use in every conversation. Again, you go underneath the words and you see the humanity of the person who's expressing those words. And that I think neither the right nor the left does very well because we tend to pounce on what we believe a person is represented by what they said on any given time, or even in the past, the way we'll unearth a tweet from a decade ago and do a gotcha with somebody on what they said then. And even then you could say, you know, I saw this thing that you posted 10 years ago that caught my attention. Could you tell me what was going on with you 10 years ago that made you want to say that? And do you still believe those things now? I mean, there are so many ways we can handle these difficult conversations without feeling that our values are attacked just by engaging in them. You can invite people to a conversation without agreeing with them. I mean, that's what human beings are supposed to do. And you also have to recognize that other people will be as complicated as you are. So you got to allow them to have their good sides and their bad sides and all of that. And they have a set of lived experiences that led them to those opinions. So you need to go underneath and ask, well, what caused you to believe that? Where, where do you feel like you've been attacked for using the wrong gender pronoun and stuff like that? What do you wish you could say in those kinds of moments that continues the conversation? We can all learn these skills. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, 
Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Why do you think it's so hard to lean into grace and benefit of the doubt? Like why, what is driving this desire to sort of lash? And is it fear? Is it fear of, uh, are we trying to prove to the world that we're good as a defense mechanism? for people coming for our heads because it is you know this it is it seems to want to come for everyone and there is no room as as you mentioned for ev- evolution right there's this idea that we're we should already be perfect we're not all learning and evolving and our understanding of the world isn't progressing why do you think you have to be so strong in order to extend Grace, why is it not our first instinct? Well, I think empathy and grace are learnable skills too. And we're not in a culture that teaches those things. I'm not a psychologist or a psychotherapist, but I believe that some of the patterns we act out are lodged in our childhood. Mm. So when you were a child and if you made a mistake and you were severely punished for making that mistake and scorned and blamed and humiliated, then you might think it's natural to do that to others when they make mistakes because you weren't forgiven. You weren't told how you could learn from the mistake. So if you had that other childhood where you were forgiven when you made a mistake and you were taught what you could learn from mistake, then that's going to predispose you to offer forgiveness and grace to others. And so in my calling in online classes, I ask people a very pointed question. Do you want to continue to live out the patterns of your childhood or do you want to make different choices? Are you programmed or are you self-determining? 
and let's look at what that looks like. So I think that people aren't taught how to be accepting of their own mistakes and self-forgive. And then because they can't do that, they can't forgive others for what they perceive are other people's mistakes. And they think that they should be harshly criticized, punished, those kinds of things. I also think that people believe there's a perfect way to do social justice work. And so that's why they get into this political purity con contest. Uh, my friend Dazon, and I put this in my book, calls it the woking dead. <laughs> or they're in this woke competition with each other. <laughs> you know, you're not sufficiently woke. I, you, know, you don't use the right words. You don't do this kind of thing. <laughs> the oppression Olympics, some other people call it. And I try to gently point out to people that there are many approaches to doing social justice work. And the approach you've chosen doesn't have to be the approach, approach everyone chooses. There are many pathways to the mountaintop. And their lived experiences are going to give them one pathway. Yours will give you another. It's like going to the eye doctor. You know, the doctor's going to shift all these different lenses in front of your face until the doctor selects the one that's right for you. That doesn't make all those other lenses wrong. It's just, they're not yours, <laughs> okay? Right. So just accept that there's many different lenses, there's many different paths, there's many different lived experiences. And yet people sometimes and quite often believe that their lens is the only one the world needs. <laughs> There yeah. is the only one the world should use. And we're in a capitalist system where winning is everything. And when you attach your ego to winning, then you will win at all costs, even if that means disparaging others, humiliating other people. And then to make it even worse, we believe that the ends justify the means. So if I'm doing great human rights work for a good cause, then it doesn't matter if I violate people's human rights on the way to doing that, because you know, you gotta break eggs to make an omelet kind of approach. And I try to push back gently on that perception because how we do the work is as important as the work that we do. And so you can't do work against racism in a homophobic way. You can't do work around economic justice in a way that's anti-immigrant. You can't do work around trans rights in a way that's misogynist without violating the very cause that you cause yourself working toward. And people are taught to live in binaries, good, evil, right, wrong, straight, gay, citizen, non-citizen, all of those things and so I try to help people understand that the world is far more complicated than these artificial binaries that have you convinced that you're right and everyone who doesn't agree with you must by definition be wrong. In your career with Reverend C.T. Vivian and monitoring the Klan and the things that I'm sure that you saw and observed and, and his quote, when you ask people to give up hate, you need to be there for them when they do and how difficult that must have been. But obviously, you've 
over the course of your life seen people change, probably in just not minor growth, but in an expanded view of humanity for some and for others pretty dramatically or remarkably. And I've also heard you say that like you don't change people's minds just by talking to them, that there's a moment where their cognitive dissonance catches up or where they recognize they can no longer bridge their lived reality with their perception of themselves. So what do you think that is? Is it just that that causes people to change? Is it just an impulse, an indescribable impulse or an eye-opening or a push? Or how do you, is there a way to create the environment where people feel safe to do that? Well, I think it is very possible to create a calling in environment where people won't be pounced upon when they tell you their honest truths. They won't be judged for having those truths and stuff like that. That is something we can create for everyone. But to the specifics of how people leave hate groups, for example, I find the causes for their leaving are pretty all over the map. They're very buried. I've had one person who left the Aryan nations because his second son was born with a cleft palate. Mm -hmm. And his Aryan buddies told him that his child was a genetic defect who needed to be called, who needed mm -hmm. to be put to death. And that was a wake up call for him because he'd been hanging out with Nazis for two decades and never thought that their cruelty and hatred would be visited on him and his family. He thought he was one of the chosen ones <laughs> that wouldn't be affected. And so he didn't have an epiphany because he suddenly discovered the humanity of black people or gay people or any of those kinds of things. He had, a, he had an epiphany because the threat came home. I've also worked with an ex-Klansman who ran away from criminal activities that his buddies were just up to too many crimes and he didn't want to get caught up in their net and so that's what caused him to lose, leave the clan. I've worked with women who didn't want to raise their children in the hate movement because they could see how that they were disdaining education and not turning into productive people as they built identities around hate of others and not self-improvement. And so there's no formula for how people leave hate movements. It's highly individualized. One guy told me, I just realized that I was smarter than the people I was hanging around with because I kept asking questions around things they didn't ask questions on. And so I don't know if there's a predictable way to say how people change their minds. That's why I believe that since we don't have that magic power to just boom, give you the right words and make you flip or change or whatever, I think the best we can do is offer people a chance to become introspective like I did with Uncle Frank. Hmm. That is this the way you really want to be an Uncle Frank or is there another Uncle Frank in there that you'd really like to display to the rest of the world? You can offer people a chance to change like someone offered you a chance to change at some point. 
But no, there's no magic bullet. Oh, you know, no magic words you can find. But I do find that most people, I mean, there are psychopaths out here, but let's put them off to the side. Most people have a misalignment between how good they think they are and how they act in the world. And we can help people examine that and make choices about whether or not they want to solve that phrase you call cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. within themselves and be as good on the outside as they think they are on the inside. And still allowing for their humanity and the fact that we will, we're human, we might want to be on the high road, we will invariably slip at moments, stumble, and that we can just offer a hand, offer the benefit of the doubt and get people back up onto their higher road. And I, I think what you said is so, it's so beautiful too. this one that there's no map, right? It's it's highly individuated process. And that also like that, that impulse the power of the impulse needing to be internal because you think about, I have, you know, interviewed tons of psychotherapists and psychiatrists and psychologists in the span of my career. And they talk about things like getting clean or getting sober, these moments where people really evolve and change. And it's widely understood that interventions are a feeble way to get someone to choose something different that you as you can show people the options, but when they decide, it has to be an internal decision that they don't want to live like this anymore. And that way they also get to take ownership of their lives and the decisions that they're making. There's no power in being told how to be or how to behave. You know, so much of this is also, I think, establishing within any authority structure, like this is what you need to do to belong. This is, these are the ways that we behave. And when we make it so outside in, rather than, as you say, calling in, calling in that higher self within each person, the self that we see frequently, you know, you see how people can sort of vacillate the moments when they're really in integrity and, and really up here. And then the moments when they're base and operating from fear and scarcity, anger. But I think, Call as you say, calling on them, calling them in, just being like, I know, I see you, I know who you are, and I know how how wonderful you are. Really, is such a it's such a wonderful invitation to that people can step into rather than like the cattle prod or the chastising, which is which is exactly what who we say we don't want to be, right? Moreover, it doesn't work. I mean, if it worked, maybe I could make an argument for the cattle prod. (laughs) But people aren't cattle. (laughs) It doesn't even work. Going back, this is your New York Times quote, which I'm sure was was intensely received. I thought it was so brilliant, where you talk about how you're here to work, right? You're here to do work, particularly in the social justice movement. And you don't want to see people co-opting the work as their own personal therapy space. I don't remember the exact quote, but essentially you were like, let's not make this because it is programming from childhood, right? It is our feelings about how we need to behave to belong or to not get slapped. How and and so what what's your best advice? I mean, I I have a therapist to work out all of these issues. Is it that you don't don't engage until you feel like you can do it from a place not of heat and anger, but of grace? 
No, it's not sequenced that way. It is an integrative process. It's going to be, you're going to do the work for the world the same time as you do the work on yourself. And it's through the crucible of struggle that you'll find out who you really are, how resilient you really are, how much you can embrace change for yourself, even as you're demanding it of the world. So it's not like I have to be healed before I can do the work. No, part of your healing is doing the work. But Mm -hmm. that's separate from expecting that the purpose of the human rights movement is to be your healing space. Because the purpose of the human rights movement is to end all forms of oppression, all human rights violations, not to be the place where you work out your angst about who you are. So that's why I say couple it with doing some therapeutic work because it's not an and 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 either or, it's an and and and. At the same time, I am deeply critical of concepts called like safe spaces and trigger warnings and things that seem to demand that people not engage in difficult conversation unless all these boundaries are put in place where people won't be discomfited. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, excuse me, that is not the purpose of doing social justice work. And so for example, I'm always amused when I get into these social justice spaces and they spend the first half hour to an hour of the meeting setting up group guidelines. And I'm like, oh, we shall not do this. We shall not do that. We shall not do this. And it's all about people's need for safety and comfort. And then they immediately violate the guidelines because nobody actually. (laughs) And I said, "Why why are you convinced that social justice work has to be so carefully scripted. When in fact, these practices of setting up guidelines aren't gonna help you when you're in the supermarket encountering a stranger that you need to decide whether to call in or call out. They're not gonna pre-agree to guidelines before you have that conversation. So why are you learning skills that only work under very scripted scenarios when the majority of your life is not lived according to a script. You know, there's a disconnect there between what we consider as good practices versus real life. I tend to encourage people to instead work on guidelines about the calling culture that you're going to create. In other words, don't pounce on people's words because they didn't use the words you think they should be using. Don't judge people by what they say, but ask them why they think what they said, why they got there in the first place. Don't fail to see their humanity while you're reacting negatively to who you think they are, because all you're seeing is a snapshot of that person. You're not seeing the full developed humanity of that person. Don't create an atmosphere where people are afraid to tell the truth for fear of being punished. Don't make people feel there's a benefit in not speaking up for fear that the mob will come on them next. Those are the kinds of calling in culture shifts that I would rather we use as guidelines. So that safe space is not just a phrase, but it's actually achieved. 
It's so true. I mean, I just I think about that even as a a progressive, I'm probably in your 90 percent bubble, and yet I watch my words as closely as I can for fear of, and and I am certainly not perfect, nor do I proclaim to be, nor would I ever want to be. I mean, it's that's an impossible standard, and we recognize that. I kind of like yet. my imperfect self, so you know, <laughs> I ain't too. trying to to, to change. <laughs> everything. I mean, there are things I want to do better. I want to take, do self-care better. And I want to be less mean when I'm agitated or upset or (laughs) things like that. But generally speaking, if you don't like yourself, you're not going to like a lot of other people. Yeah. And it leaves you nothing to work on. I mean, I think we're not gods. And as you say, like, I don't want to be G I'm not Jesus, you know, like he's got a job. (laughs) He's got that only job that's available (laughs) in that role. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I also, like you, I heard you just, you talk about Brian Stevenson, who I've, adore, I, hero, who I've gotten to interview a couple times in my life. And I don't want to be anyone's executioner. You know, that is not, I'm not interested in the same way that I don't want to be erratically judged. I'm not really interested in judging anyone else, nor do I feel like I have the right, again, it's the same tactics, right? Like, I'm not going to be someone's firing squad. And yet, that's effectively what's happening collectively 
is, I think you used the example of like, if Donald Trump were drowning in your swimming pool, you would throw him a, a dinghy. And I think that that's so, I mean, we, it, it's to not is to dehumanize, which is exactly what we're so critical of other people for doing. So, you know, Donald Trump, if I was unlucky enough to find Donald Trump in my swimming pool, because I would consider that a bad fortune right there, is because that would be like the ultimate test of my integrity. <laughs> I'm hoping I never have to face that test because I swear the evil Loretta may triumph over the Loretta who wants to be good. But yes, I'd probably throw him a life raft. And as soon as I rescued him from the pool, I'd cuss him out for what he's done. So, <laughs> Don't let him drown to the point where you have to give him mouth to mouth, Loretta. Uh, yeah, that would be... Well, first of all, he died because I don't know how to do mouth to mouth for anybody. <laughs> yeah, but the thought, you know, well, you know, I've always felt sorry for Melania, but in moving right along, um, <laughs> I really think that it's really important to understand that when you choose to use calling in practices, you're choosing them because of who you are, not who the other person is mm. because you're choosing to be the best you you can be and you're fiercely protective of your own integrity and how you walk through the world so never see calling in as what you're doing from someone for someone else that's the savior impulse we need to avoid that as all possible because it rarely helps the other person and it's only boosting our egos. But if you're doing it because that's how you want to walk through the world and display the best you that you can be, then you're doing it for the right reasons. Because you're affirming your humanity, humanity through the affirmation of someone else's. Well, if this was your introduction to Loretta and her work, I hope you enjoyed it. I really think that there's so much to learn from her and the way that she holds herself in the world, including her long track record of meeting people where they are and allowing them space to move. And I completely relate to this idea of you know, we all have this idea of ourselves and who we are in the world and how we want to show up and this perfect, poised, well-spoken, thoughtful, kind, generous, all of those adjectives. And then the ways in which we so often fall short, you know, and the shame, of course, that comes from that of feeling like, oh, really wish I hadn't said that like that, or I should have said something and I didn't, or... What I think that Loretta is speaking to is the urgency around not letting calling out or cancel culture deprive us out of fear from the conversations that we need to be having and that we need to be engaging with, with a growth mindset, honestly, because the world is changing rapidly. Language is changing rapidly. We're all trying to keep up and to do our best. And sure, there are people with deep pathologies amongst us who would wish many of us harm. And it's not about not wanting accountability for those people or not wanting to 
call those people out or call out organizations or call out people who are so powerful we could never we could never reach them on the personal level but in our day-to-day lives particularly with people who with whom we share more most of our core essential values why would we cast each other aside so easily and so readily and can we really give each other grace and it is so hard it is such such an ask but as she said also in these moments it's not about self-righteousness or ego inflaming or feeling like oh I'm such a much better person I'm going to express to this person in this moment how good I am and how much better I am than they are and how much more evolved I am but it is really focusing on expressing yourself it's about you right and how do I want to be in this moment and what is the best representation of me in this moment is it chastising and shaming and belittling or is it holding a durable amount of space for conversation that might be hard but those are the conversations that we need to be having thanks for listening to this week's episode you can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, Please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.